someone will say, say to me or to someone uh, that believes in the gift of healing, oh, you, you believe in the gift of healing? Well, yes, I do. Oh, you think you have a gift of healing? Well, you know, maybe a ministry of healing. I, I don't know. I have any awesome gift of healing. Well, if you think you have a gift of healing, why don't you just go into hospital rooms and clear them out and do some good? Uh, you ever had anybody talk like that to you? That's pretty common, isn't it? And uh, it it's really rests on a misunderstanding of the gift of healing. People that say that, they think if you have a gift of healing that you can automatically turn it on whenever you want to and it's always 100% effective. Now, we know that's not true about other gifts, right? Like the gift of evangelism. It doesn't mean every time you witness to somebody they're going to get saved, right? We don't demand that of Billy Graham or, or anybody else. Or the gift of teaching. Every time you exercise the gift of teaching, it doesn't mean somebody's going to be built up in the faith. And in fact, I've taught a lot where it's just been like a sleeping sedative, you know, just help people go to sleep. But we take this gift of healing because of some misunderstandings uh, in the way we look at the New Testament, and we think it means it's automatic, always 100%, and always irreversible. But the truth is, not even Jesus used the gift of healing like that. There were times when he could not heal. Mark 6, uh, 1-6 says that he went to Nazareth, his hometown, and he was amazed at their unbelief. And it says he could do no mighty miracles there. Matthew 13, 58 talks about the same passage and says he could do no mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. So even the Son of God subjects himself to uh, spiritual uh, laws or, or, a, or, or uh, spiritual applications. And there's another time when the Son of God was at a hospital. Tons of sick people lying around and he only healed one person. Why would he do that? Why would he be in a hospital with all these sick people, have the greatest healing gift of all, and only heal one person? Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This is the pool of Bethesda. The tradition was an angel would come down, stir the water. First one in the water afterwards would get healed. So you get all these sick people lying around the pool of Bethesda. And there's one guy who's been uh, paralyzed for 38 years. Now this is verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And by the way, there are a lot of interesting things in verse 6 here. Did you see the phrase, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, even though the Son of God was omniscient, as a man, he learned things. It wasn't, I mean, he did not get everything supernaturally when he was looking at someone. He operated under the ministry of the Holy Spirit the way we're supposed to operate under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A number of times it'll talk about Jesus learning things. And sometimes there's this misconception in the uh in the charismatic church that if you're really moving in the spirit you just you're like you're 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 semi-omniscient you just know things people come up to me and they say would you uh pray for me i said sure i said what would you like for me to pray for well the lord will tell you and i said well okay just in case he doesn't tell me what would you like me to pray for (laughs) i mean it's like if the lord doesn't tell you supernaturally then he's not going to heal me supernaturally that's not true jesus learned things and then acted upon them and Before I ever started praying for the sick, this question uh, used to puzzle me. Do you want to get well? 
Do you want to get well? He's paralyzed for 38 years. He's lying by the pool. I mean, of course he wants to get well. Not necessarily. What I've learned over the years praying for sick people is not everybody wants to get well. Sometimes a person's identity gets tied up with their sickness. Sometimes, and this can especially be true with children, it's the only way they get attention when they're sick. So they get sick often and they like to stay that way because it's the only time they feel loved. And for other people, the way they relate to people is all bound up in their sickness. And I've seen people get healed and then their family relationships crumble afterwards. I saw a lady get out of a wheelchair that had been in one for eight years. And not too long after that, she ends up in a divorce. Her, part of her husband's identity was in caring for and taking care of an invalid wife. And when, when she got healed, it took away a large part of his identity. So when Jesus says, do you want to get well? It wasn't a trick question. Do you really want to get well? Or do you need to keep lying here? And you know, the interesting thing about this story is the man never says he wants to get well. But Jesus heals him, gets up, walks. Awesome. All these other sick people around there. And what does Jesus do next? He gets in an argument with the Pharisees. And that's the only person he heals. He's in the midst of a hospital. He heals one person that day. Why? Why? Look at verse 19. Here's the key to ministry. Verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Here's what Jesus says. The reason only one person got healed that day in the hospital was because my father was only healing one person. So the key to ministry is not to whip it up, make it happen, get everybody energized or to get a program that's going to do this or that. The key to ministry is to see what our Heavenly Father is doing and then put our hand to that. Someone said the other day, I'll fund you to start a church if you'll start a church in this particular city. Actually, more than one person said that to me. If you start a church in this area, if you start a church in that area, we'll fund the church and, and we'll give you all the money it takes to get the thing going until it's up and, and uh, running. And in one case, there were two or three, four hundred people that wanted to be uh, part of it. And I said, no, I, I don't think so. And they said, well, we can make it happen. We can, we can do this. I mean, we have the funds. We have the place. We've got the interest in the people. We can make it happen. And I said, yeah, I'm afraid that's the truth. I'm afraid we could make it happen. Yeah. I, I need to see, and you need to see, what, your, what our Heavenly Father is doing before we try to do ministry. Now, each one of us in here is called into ministry. Did you know that? Every single person in here is called into ministry. Not every single person is called to give up your day job, but every single person in here is called to ministry. And all we need to do is discover what our calling is and what our gifts are. Some of us will have exquisite gifts of help, some of us will have prophetic gifts, some of us healing gifts, some of us administrative gifts, some of us teaching gifts, some of us gifts of mercy, gifts of faith. Maybe faith and mercy are what fuel the ministry of intercession. I kind of think they are. But every single person in here has a gift. And when we use that gift in a mature way, and we use it under the leading of the Lord, we come into a wonderful realm of joy and fulfillment. Some of us are unfulfilled because we, we haven't yet discovered what our gifts are and we're not using them yet in an effective way. Not everyone in here is called to be a prophet, but everyone in here is called to hear the voice of God so we can minister. Hearing God's voice is a key to ministry. Loving with all your heart and soul, I mean, that's the key to everything. But if we're going to be effective in ministry, it starts with loving him and then hearing him so we put our hand to what he's doing. Just a little small problem is, how do you know it's God? <laughs> how do you know 
it's not the devil. How do you know it's not your own soul speaking to you or the pressure you feel coming from uh, others? How do you know when it's God? And first, you have to know how God speaks. How, how are the ways that he speaks to us? What's the main way God speaks to us? Yeah, the, the written word, the written word. Now, if you don't believe that, just read Psalm 19, verses 7 and following. Look at all the wonderful things this word does. And if that doesn't convince you, then just turn to the life of Jesus and watch the way he relates to, uh, uh, to the word. Watch the way he uses the word. And, and Luke 24 He's now been resurrected, and he appears to the um, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they can't recognize him. What he does during that time is he starts in Genesis, and he preaches a sermon about himself out of the whole Old Testament. He goes, Genesis, Psalms, the prophets, preaches a sermon about himself. And it lasts all day long as they're walking on the way to Emmaus. And then he reveals himself to him, and they're all excited. And I, I say, Lord, why did you wait so long to reveal yourself to him? Why didn't you just tell him who you were right at the beginning? Why do you preach a message about yourself to them out of the Bible? And the answer is, this is the primary way he's going to speak to his children for the rest of the time we're here on earth. He's giving us an example. The primary, regular, daily way he's going to communicate to us is out of this book right here. But I hold in my hand the most unread book in the church. <laughs> it's true. We'll do just about anything except read the Bible. Well, no, we will, we'll do about anything except pray. And next to that's read the Bible. We'll go to conferences. We'll read books about the Bible. We'll listen to tons of tapes. We'll put them in our car. But we'll do just about anything except read the Bible. We find it easier to read, listen to other things than we do the Bible. Why is that? Everybody in here believes we should be meditating and reading in the scriptures every day, right? We, we all pretty much believe that. And we believe that without the Bible, we'll go astray and, and so on. I used to think it's because people weren't disciplined, but I don't believe that's the reason. I, I believe the real reason is when we read the Bible, we don't enjoy it. I believe that's the real reason. You, you do what you enjoy doing. And uh, the key is not so much discipline, maybe discipline at the beginning, but if all you ever get is discipline, you're toast. You're never going to make it. You're, if all you ever have is discipline, if your heart never gets excited in this and you just do it out of discipline, you just become a very clever devil. You just become a Pharisee. Because this was not meant, this book was written by the most exciting being anywhere and he didn't write it to bore us. He wrote this for us to enjoy reading it. So maybe what we're doing is we're reading this the wrong way. The guys that heard Jesus speaking to them through the word on the road to Emmaus, they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the way? Not while we were talking about him, not while we were listening to tapes, not while we were reading the best commentary on John. Were not our hearts burning to us while he was speaking to us on the way? And what he was speaking was the word. And here's what I found out. I can read this Bible on my own, and when I do, I, I don't enjoy it very much. I'm a reader, so I kind of enjoy a lot of what I read. But there's a total difference between reading this on your own and reading it in the presence of the Lord. Having Him actually speak to you. And so if you'll come to this Word to encounter a person, 
to hear His voice. You come to this Word and you, oh, you reserve this time and you open up your spirit before the Lord and you, and you don't hide anything from Him. So I think that's what it means to pray without ceasing. It's to go with an open spirit all day long before the Lord. Not, not take one area of your life and say, okay, sorry, this part of my thought life we can't talk about. Oh, sorry, this addiction I'm just keeping over here. I'm reserving this for myself. Now take it all and open it up to Him. Ask Him at the very beginning, Lord, I'm going to meditate in Your Word. I, I want to read Your Word now. But the primary reason I'm doing this, the primary reason I'm opening up Your Word is so I can open up my heart to You and actually hear Your voice actually speak to you and have a conversation with you this morning. But I'm like a little kid. I don't know how to go in or come out before you. I don't have all the tools I need. But would you please help me? Would you let me hear your voice? Make your goal to hear his voice, to come into his presence, and watch what happens when you try to meditate in the Word then. There's a real danger, guys like me, you know, pastors, preachers, and teachers, the real danger we face is studying the Bible for other people. You know, trying to come up with uh, something. And uh, I found over the years that's not really productive. That my reason for opening up the Word and meditating in it is to come into the presence of a person. And when that really becomes our heart, watch what happens to that time you spend uh, alone. So this is the number one way He'll speak to us. We all know it. And the, the problem is we have to learn to enjoy it. You know what I do when I'm reading the Bible and it's boring? I close it. And I just look up and I say, what's wrong? What's wrong? Is it... Am I thinking about something else? Is my heart distracted? Uh, did I do something to really tick you off? I mean, what's wrong? And I just start talking to the Lord like that. And, you know, sometimes within a couple of minutes, I'll have an answer. Like one morning I got up, and I mean, I got up really early, before, significantly before the sun, and, uh, and uh, I, I just was drinking coffee and kind of getting ready to go have my little meditation spot. I just I thought, uh, oh, it's going to be an awesome morning this morning. I know just what I want to do. I picked out three passages I was going to read, and so I opened up the first passage and started reading, and it was dull and dry, nothing. And uh, so I said, I don't care. I'm going to finish this. I don't care how bad it is. I'm going to finish this, and I'm going to, watch, I'm going to see it change. And so I finished it, and nothing happened. And I said, well, this is, the devil's not going to deter me. I'm going to go into the second passage. You know? And I went through the second passage, and it was kind of a long time. I finished the third passage. It was nothing. I just closed the Bible, and I, I, you know, I just said, what's the matter? I mean, this is literally what I said. I said, what's the matter? Didn't we get up at the same time? <laughs> it's kind of, I was offended. I was offended. And uh, then I heard a voice, just almost instantly, I heard a voice say, uh, what did you come here for? And I'm thinking, well, what do you mean, what did I come here for? I mean, I, mean, I, I took trouble to get up early. And, and, I, and, and then and I realized an, an, an omniscient being doesn't ask a question to get information. <laughs> so I say, you know, when he said, Adam, where are you? <laughs> he wasn't asking for directions. So... It was a question to Adam, was, is this what, you get what you want, Adam, by disobeying me? So I'm thinking, what did I come here for this morning? I tried to back up to when I first sat down, and then it hit me. I came here to finish three passages. I had three texts. I came here to do that. I forgot I was meeting with a person. I came here to accomplish a task. And it's like the Lord said, I am not a task, and I will not be treated like one. But I taught people for years to study the Bible as though it were a task. You just got to slug it out, guys. Just got to slug it out. Like he's some boring, horrible person. You just have to endure his word. for. It. And when you get through with his word, if you put your 30 minutes in, then you can go have fun. Then you can go back to your real life. What I found, when I open this word up to meet a person and he's actually there, it's the greatest time of my life. 
this is the greatest time of my life. It was the greatest time of those guys' life on the, on the road to Emmaus. So this is the number one way he speaks to us. I just encourage you, if you're not enjoying the scriptures now, ask him what's wrong. Because he really, really, really wants to speak to you through his word, more than you and I want to listen. He really wants to communicate to us. That's the first and the most basic way he communicates to us. There are other ways he'll communicate to us. He'll speak in an audible voice. He'll speak in an audible voice to an individual like Moses, or he'll speak in an audible voice to a whole nation like the nation of Israel. And Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Spoke to a whole nation. They all heard the audible voice. He speaks to an audible voice to a group of people in John chapter 12. Jesus is praying, and uh, let's just turn there. This is one of the more important passages on hearing God. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Here's an audible voice that says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The voice didn't stutter. It was clear. And some people heard only thunder. You say, well, maybe God was trying to conceal his voice from him. No, Jesus says this voice came for your benefit. My father was intending to communicate with you. See, a lot of people think if God were to speak in an audible voice right now, that every single person in this room would hear it and hear it clearly. That's not the case. Some people would hear thunder. Some people might hear microphone static. Others heard the voice. Some heard thunder. What this passage teaches us is that the key to hearing the voice of God, whether it's audible, whether it's in the Word, or whether it's one of the other ways He speaks, the key lies in the heart, not in the intelligence. Not, not, in, the, not in the physical uh, hearing. The key to hearing the voice of the Lord lies in the heart of the hearer, not in the intelligence or skill or some, something else. The voice can be audible, the voice can be uh, audible to your ears, but no one else may hear it in the room. In other words, God could actually speak to you right now, and you could hear his voice, and it would, you would hear it with your ears, not in your mind, but no one else would hear it in the room. That's what he did to Samuel. That's 1 Samuel 3, where, where that's done. And by the way, I, I'm not 100% sure that I've ever heard the audible voice. Sometimes I've heard something I think that was audible, but there was enough ambiguity I couldn't say for sure. But I know people, I, I know people who are walking with the Lord, credible people, who hear the audible voice of God. God is still speaking to people today in an audible voice. The people who hear him speak in an audible voice, uh, it, it is not a trivial thing. It's not something they joke about or talk about in a lighthearted manner. It's usually a terrifying thing whenever he speaks in an audible voice just like it was many times in the Scripture. It was so terrifying to the people in Israel, they, they begged Moses to stand between them and God and to, uh, to hear his voice. But he is speaking in an audible voice today. And it's the rarest way he speaks in the Scripture, but supernatural instances of communication are increasing today. They're on the rise. 
Angelic encounters are on the rise. That's another way that he speaks to you, through angelic uh, in, encounters. Um, and I know people who've actually seen angels in the flesh. I know a, a, a prophetess who, not too long ago, actually had a visit from an angel, and the, and, the, and the angel appeared in the shape of an elderly lady about five feet tall, came into the room where she was praying and delivered a message. And when the message was, was finished, then the angel went straight up through the ceiling. This is a, a real, credible, God-fearing, uh, gifted lady that had that experience. But I've heard that from more than... One person, and those things are on the uh, increase. Audible voice, audible to you alone, angelic encounters, um, and uh, I, I should have put before the audible voice even, I should have put visitations from the Lord. I mean, I know people that have had visitations from the Lord, and you say, was it in the body? Was it in the spirit? And sometimes they're just like the Apostle Paul. They say, I don't know. I, c- I can't tell. But it was as real. Whatever it was, it was totally real. And those are life-changing encounters whenever they, uh, whenever they happen. Uh, so, visitation from the Lord, audible voice from the Lord, uh, voice audible to yours alone. Uh, the uh, n- next way he'll speak, like he spoke to the prophets many times who are writing scriptures, full sentences just formed in your mind, just full sentences. Most of the time when they say, thus says the Lord, they're not talking about hearing an audible voice, but these full sentences formed in their mind. They'll, like um, Ezekiel is sitting before a group uh, of elders, and the word of the Lord comes to him saying, and then he begins to tell them. He's not listening to an audible voice, but he's listening to a voice in his mind that's just as clear. And uh, I've had that happen to me, not a whole lot, but maybe 15 times over the last 15, 16 years. Always very meaningful when it happens. Just complete sentences, they seem to come from nowhere. Sometimes, the, uh, instead of a sentence, you just get a, a word, just a, or part of a sentence fragment. This happened to uh, Isaiah in chapter 8. He gets four Hebrew words strung together in an ungrammatical form. doesn't even make a sentence. One time I know a pastor who was preaching, and uh, this was the Anaheim Church where I was, and he was just preaching, and then he stopped and said, Lord, is there anybody here you want to heal? And then he hears, young woman, migraines, doesn't call them migraines, three weeks, a spirit or a demon. There's a young lady there that morning, 28 years old, and she had spent the night with one of the other young ladies from the church. And she said to, on Saturday night, she said, you know, I get these headaches. They come every three weeks. They're not migraines, uh, but they are really excruciating. They're just like clockwork every three weeks. And, and the, her friend said, well, why don't you come to my church? Sometimes we pray for those kind of things and people get healed at my church. She says, really? And she, and she said, yeah, it's real. It's not fake. It's real. So she comes and uh, then the pastor says, I think there's a young woman, or not the pastor, but who is preaching, says, there's a young woman here this morning. You, you get headaches. They're, they're, you don't call them migraines, but they're severe. They come to you every three weeks. If you'll come forward, I think the Lord will touch you. So she come, He didn't say anything about the demon or the spirit, which was wise. The... Uh, <laughs> Young lady comes forward, and uh, the pastor and his wife say, when did these start? And, and she said, well, it was about, I, I don't remember, two years or th- something, 18 months before. She was in a car wreck, and she hit her head really bad right here. And she said, ever since then, I've had those headaches. And one of the things I've learned about uh, uh, demons, and I, and I don't know how to explain this, is that, but sometimes through severe trauma, uh, a demon will gain an entry point to a person. And I think it's because of fear. You know, fear is one of the greatest tools that the devil uses and uh, sometimes demons can get an access point in an involuntary way. It's not because of prolonged sin. You know, like the little boy in Mark 9, 
uh, 29, Jesus says, how long has he been like this? And the father says, from his youth up. Well, that means from that, that word youth can be from about six years of age. So, and then Jesus says, this kind doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting. It's the different kinds of demons. And what Jesus was saying, there is a kind of demon that can get into a little child before that little child's done anything right or wrong. I mean, knows the difference between right or, or wrong. And so I know there is biblical evidence that spirits can have access to people who haven't committed vol- voluntarily, voluntary prolonged sin. Well, that was this girl's case, this young woman's case. So he says, it's right here, right here on this side of my head. So they just put their hands on that side of her head and they said, Lord, you know, we pray you deliver her from these headaches and break its power. And we speak to anything manipulating these headaches uh, and we command it away now in the name of Jesus. They just said anything. They didn't say demon or whatever. And so I saw that. I was standing there. I was in the ministry team that day. I witnessed the whole deal. And uh, she liked the church, and so she started coming back. About three weeks later or six weeks later, I saw her coming out of one of our her ministry team training things. And I said, hey, how's your headaches? And she said, what headaches? She goes, it's the most amazing thing. They've not been back since the day I got prayed for. So about four months later, again, bumped into her on one of the ministry tr- team training things. And I said, what about those headaches? She said, great, great. And so the whole time I was at the church and saw her, they never... Uh, they never came back. They really were caused by a spirit. Now, that just came like this. Lord, would you, is there anybody here you want to heal? Young woman, migraines, doesn't call them migraines, three weeks, spirit. Just like that. So the pastor's thinking, well, that must mean this, and then calls it out, and the person's delivered. Why is that? Because hearing the voice of God is the key to ministry. Hearing the voice of God is the key to ministry. Okay, so they get, you can get sentence fragments. Or sometimes you, you, you don't get sentence fragments. Sometimes you just have an impression. Just an impression. Um, like uh, Nehemiah chapter 7, he says, The Lord put it on my heart to take a census. The Lord put it on my heart. He leads by heart, by just an impression on the heart. One of my favorite ones is Acts 14, where the Apostle Paul is preaching at Lystra. And he looks down in verse 8, and he sees a lame man... And it says, he saw that he had faith to be healed. Now, how do you see faith on somebody? How do you see somebody has faith to be healed? Well, I never knew how you see until I started praying to see. But it's an impression. It's not an audible voice. John Wimber would stand next to me because uh, one night we were in Sydney, Australia, and they brought a lady in on a stretcher and brought her right down to the front and John Wimber and I were sitting on the front row. We were sitting over here, and we watched her go by like that, and they brought her all the way over here, and, and John goes, Jack, she's got faith to be healed. She's going to get healed tonight. And I go, awesome. I said, how about you and me, as soon as Paul King gets through speaking, we run over there and pray for him. He goes, you got a deal, and we do the high five and all that. And so I can't wait for Paul to shut up so we can get over there and, and pray for this lady. Because when Wimber said, I see faith on somebody, I mean, it's my experience with him, they, they have faith in it. And it Worked out. So as soon as Paul said, Amen, we jump up and I start running over there and two people on the ministry team beat us there and she was up before we ever got there. (laughs) She was up and started dancing right down the front of the stage and then some of the folks that were attending the conference, they wanted to throw the cot up on the stage and John shook his head at one of the ministry team guys and the the ministry team guys goes, and he says, no, we we don't do that. We dance, but we're we're not trying to show off like that. People know she got... Healed, but so she just kept on dancing across the uh, uh, across the room, and and how that start? Well, John just looked at her and said, I, "She's got faith. She's got faith. It's like whoever gets to pray for her first is going to find out she's got faith to be healed." 
And uh, one of the things John would do when he was teaching people how to pray for the sick, you know, he would uh, maybe call out something like, uh, you know, there's people here with this in their left ear or, or whatever. And often there'd be eight or nine or ten people. He would call them down to the front. He would pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And then he would just look at them. And, and he wouldn't go to somebody right away. And he wouldn't just pick the first person and start praying down the line. He would look for someone. And then he'd smile. And then he'd walk to the person he saw faith on. Pray for them. They would get healed in front of the whole audience. And it would release faith to the other people and release faith in the, in the audience. You can actually see faith on, on people. And it's an impression. It's not like an audible voice you hear. Sometimes, um, in a, just try this out in a home group. I, I was trying to teach a bunch of uh, Presbyterians how to hear the voice of God. And so I got them all in the home group. And, and we were um, worshiping a little bit and gave about a 10, 15 minute teaching on uh, hearing God's voice. I said, okay, let's pray and see if, uh, if the Lord will heal anybody. So everybody bows their head. So we uh, pray, wait for a few minutes. And I say, okay, anybody hear the Lord? And there's maybe uh, 30 or 40 people in the room. And they all just stare at me like that. Like, what do you mean, hear the Lord? And I kind of mean what I was talking about a while ago. Anybody hear anything? But nobody's going to say anything. They're all afraid. So I'm just looking across the room while I'm waiting for them. And my eyes light on a lady named DJ. And I'm just looking at her. And all of a sudden, I know that she's got pain on this shoulder right here. And it goes down her back. But it's really up here in her neck. And it goes down a little in her back. And so uh, I say, DJ. Do you have pain right right here? And does it go down your neck right here? And she goes, oh, yeah, it's been killing me. It's been killing me for a couple of days now. And I said, well, let's pray for you and see if it'll go away. And we pray for it and it goes just like that. And they say, how do you know that? And the way you know that is you just get sensitive to the impressions. You learn that's one of the ways God's going to speak to you. And uh, are you always right? No, I still miss it uh, uh, today. But I'm right a heck of a lot more than I used to be when I started out. And at, when I first started hanging around with John Wimber and trying to do what uh, John Wimber would do. You know, he, he would put me up on a stage with him. And, and, he, and at the beginning, he never put me up there and said, okay, Jack, you're on your own. What he would do is sometimes I would do the teaching and then he would walk up and he would do the ministry time. And then he would say, you know, he would tell me beforehand, if you get anything, just tell me and we'll, uh, and we'll, and we'll go with it or we'll, we'll try it. But he didn't put pressure on me to make me do this. And so in the beginning, when I first started out, you know, I got enough to encourage me, but I probably got uh, as much or more wrong than I got right. And I began to learn that if you succumb to that pressure to produce something, you'll almost always be wrong. If you try to make something happen, you'll almost always be wrong. When you feel the, the pressure of an audience, to, uh, you know, and, and that, that sort of thing, the expectation... Uh, and, and you feel this tension and, and or you feel this desire to prove something to somebody. It's almost always wrong. But the best times are just when you're relaxed and your attitude is, Lord, you heal people all the time. These are your people. You love them. I did the best I could do. Would you please speak to me now and show me somebody you want to heal? And you're just relaxed. And if you don't show me, then we don't do anything. Once uh, I was at the group five days and every night we had wonderful words of knowledge and healing. And on the uh, fifth night, I thought it was going to be awesome. And I stood up there for 10 minutes and nothing happened. And finally I just said, you know, no, nothing's happening tonight. We'll just get the ministry team down here. I mean, I said, nothing's happening. I said, I'm not getting anything tonight. I don't have a direction. So uh, we'll just have the ministry team down and anybody that wants to be prayed for, just come up and we'll pray for you. And they all applauded. When the whole room applauded, they said, we like that. We like that. You, you, that you'll say when you don't have anything, you'll just say it. One of the reasons I like to minister in a team situation is because you don't always get something. But if you've got a team there, it's often one of the team is going to uh, get something. 
Just learn to be sensitive to those impressions. You find yourself in a room like this and you're looking around and all of a sudden you find yourself staring at, a, at, at somebody's left shoulder or an ear or something like that. Often it may mean that person uh, uh, has pain. Or sometimes you could even see something in the room and it'll cause you to uh, think about uh, something. Once I was in a meeting of about 500 people and I was praying for a word of knowledge and this disease, I forget, now even now I forget the name of the disease, but it wasn't very common, came into my mind and while it came into my mind, I was looking down on the monitor, uh, on one of the guitar monitors on stage and I saw a dime and a penny. I found myself staring at that dime and penny and thinking about this disease. And all of a sudden, I, I, I said, what am I doing staring at that dime and penny? I said, what, that means something. I mean, it's like it caught my attention. And I went, ah, a dime and a penny, 11, 11 cents. That must mean 11 people have this. So I go, oh, that's kind of far out. But I, I go, and I go, well, what do you got to lose? Uh, it's only 500 people, and they'll forget you after you leave anyway. So I go, uh, I go, I think 11 people have this, and I wish I could remember what it was, but you know what? 11 people had that in the uh, room. And you say, how do you know to do that? Well, one of, the other, one of the other guys in the vineyard had gotten words of knowledge just like that, just looking at something, and all of a sudden it was kind of quickened to them. It was more than just looking at this. It's like a little knowing comes up in your spirit. And how do you know if it's true? Got to act on it. And uh, then you begin to learn the difference when you're pressing to make something happen and when it's really the Lord uh, speaking to you. Okay, another thing that can happen, uh, another way God can speak to you, um, oh, and I think impressions are also come under that category of sometimes you just know in your spirit. Often it would say Jesus knew what they were thinking. It's like a knowing. And, and sometimes you, all of us, I think, have probably had that experience. We're looking at somebody and we just know what's going on in their mind. We know what they're going to say uh, next. John often, John Wimber often got words of knowledge by seeing pictures. He's just famous for, uh, for seeing pictures. And, and uh, then he would just call that picture out and just be real simple, real quick, and it would be gone. And that was the most common way, one of the most common ways God gave him words of knowledge. I mean, you know, he, he, he closed his eyes. I remember this one day. He, uh, he saw a man bent over in a shower, uh, saw him inhaling this uh, chemical, and saw a raw throat. John just says, this kind of sounds really weird, but I think there's someone here tonight, and uh, you, got, you inhaled something in a shower. Well, of course, it's Southern California, but so not that weird there. Um, but, and, and you've had a raw throat ever since. And this was a man working in a shower, so I forget, setting up a tile or what, and there was some kind of chemical agent that he was using that spilled water, and he damaged his throat that way, and he got healed that night. It was like a picture in John's uh, mind. And sometimes what happens to me, I don't see pictures as much as sometimes I'll just have impressions or knowing, or when I'm looking at people, I'll have an impression. But every once in a while, I close my eyes, and I'll just see. It's just like the little briefest picture. I was uh, going before this um, really aristocratic audience in an aristocratic church, a uh, very wealthy uh, church, and they had asked me to come and talk one night about healing and one night about uh, hearing God's voice. So I was saying just what I said to you. I said, Sometimes you'll just see a little picture. It's just there for a second or two, and it's gone. And when I said that, I saw right up here this esophagus just dangling up there in the air. And then it floats across the room. And I'm just, sometimes just a little picture. It's just there and gone. And I thought, esophagus. Ah, that must mean that there, uh, there are people here tonight with hiatal hernias and reflux esophagitis. I saw the esophagus over here on this side of the room, and it went over here. That must mean on both sides of the place, there are people with reflux esophagitis and hiatal hernias. Now, there's 
uh, every seat in the place is filled. So I just stopped what I'm saying, and I said, like just then, I saw an esophagus floating across the room, and they go, uh. So I said, there are a number of you here that have uh, reflux esophagitis and hiatal hernias, and I would say 20 to 25% of the room stood up. Never have I seen that many people with that condition stand up in one room. There's something about those aristocrats and their esophagus. It just... And there were other people, I could see other people that weren't standing up in the room. I saw one wife hitting her husband like this. Come on, honey, you know you have that. And he, he's going, no, 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 I'm not going to stand up. <laughs> and there were people healed that night. Not everybody, but there were uh, people healed. Now, sometimes the pictures turn into visions. And the vision uh, can be simple, like it just tells a story. Or it can be like Daniel or... Uh, uh, or John in Revelation, where you smell the smells, you hear the sounds, and you actually feel it in your body. It's though, as though you're really there. And then some days, or sometimes, those visions can be so terrifying that you're sick afterwards. They can be that intense. That's what happened to uh, uh, Daniel in uh, chapter uh, 7. This uh, last, I think it was about May, uh, Lisa wakes up early in the morning. She says, I had the most incredible, vivid dream. And, and by the way, sometimes the scripture makes no distinction between a dream or a vision. Daniel will call, call it a vision once and he'll call it a dream the next time. Normally, what we do is we say, if you're asleep, it's a dream. If you're awake, it's a vision. And if you're awake and you become immobile, then it's like a trance. This happens three times in the New Testament. Paul falls into a trance. Peter falls into a trance where it's almost like your bodily functions are suspended. Lisa said, this is like, I think, late May. She said, I had this most amazing dream last night. It was so real. I was like, I was there. She said, it was all day long, day after day. There was nothing on TV except wars and conflicts and breaking out. It was just, it was Day after day after day. And what she was describing was September 11th. But we didn't put it. We, I just said, this must mean significant war is going to be coming. And we, and we had been feeling that and talking about that for some time. Then in um, the middle of the summer, like 6 o'clock in the morning, and I hear her scream, and I turn over in the bed, and she's in a fetal position, curled up, can't move, and she's uh, not quite a scream, but it's like a, uh, between a scream and a moan. She's in a trance. And when she came out of it, here's what she saw. I'll just tell you this before it comes to pass. We should be praying against it because this is, I think, what the next step, this is what the enemy, the devil, is really trying to do. She was at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And this flood came in, this black flood came in, and it killed everybody at the Wailing Wall. And the next scene, she's in uh, an Israeli house. And they can hear the bombs whistling down from air. It's like they can hear them a long way off, whistling down. And there's no way to get away from them. And, and the people are terrified. They're running here and there. But there's no escape. And, and just before the bombs hit and everything's blown, she's in the house. And she can feel it. She can feel the terror. Just before the bombs hit, then she, that's when she's moaning in the dream and, and the trance. And I, I shake her and she comes out of it. See, I think that's the devil's plan. The devil's plan is to obliterate Israel. And, and uh, so far, they've had God's protection. But I think the devil is trying to provoke the United States into provoking the Muslim world into a united 
uh, front against Israel and against the West. Number of us, this is, I mean, I'm just giving you a prophetic message now rather than talking about hearing God. But a number of us feel this way. I know Paul Cain was shown this. Um, Rick Joyner was shown this. That some of the radical fundamentalists, the radical terrorists, the fundamentalists, are going to start blowing up their own mosque. They're going to do it to provoke the, uh, the Muslim world against Israel and against the West. One of the things that's protected Israel is the Muslim world has not been united. But if they would get really united, Israel could be significantly hurt and we could be in a war that would be very, very difficult to win. You can bomb a nation, but you can't bomb necessarily bomb a terrorist. And right now, uh, uh, there are briefcase and suitcase quality nuclear weapons that could... Uh, a briefcase quality weapon that could actually uh, obliterate the uh, Empire State Building and send huge steel girders for uh, hundreds of hundreds of feet like guided missiles and do enough damage that there's no telling how long it would take to clean the area up from radioactive material. It could be carried in a briefcase. And I was reading about this. I've been reading books on atomic war and nuclear weapons lately and talking to some scientists uh, about it. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, Davy Crockett was, and they told me the man who invented Davy Crockett, I read a book about him, a man named Ted Taylor. These weapons have been here for a long time, and what they've been doing is perfecting them, getting them smaller and smaller and smaller. Do you know how much uh, nuclear material was used to uh, destroy Hiroshima and the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima? Do you know how much nuclear material was actually converted from matter into energy? About a penny's worth. And the trick has not been to get a lot of nuclear material. The trick is to, be, is to figure out how to release the energy from smaller and smaller amounts of it to get the nuclear reaction going. And that science is coming along well. And it's very, very possible, if not likely, that there are terrorists in the world who already have those quality of, uh, of weapons. And I think what Lisa was seeing in that trance is the plan of the uh, enemy. And I'll just go out on a limb now uh, and, and say... I think our government is getting ready to make the biggest mistake in the world if they attack Iraq, invade Iraq. I think that's gonna, that will be a key that sets off a, uh, that, that, that becomes a catalyst to release this terror against Israel and make September 11th look like a cakewalk uh, over here. There are people in place over here that, could, uh, that have security clearances and have been like sleepers for a long time. And we, the church, this is why we were given prophets. We need to wake up. And everything I'm just saying to you right now is just not my opinion. There are very mature prophetic voices like Paul Cain, Rick Joyner, who have been getting these kind of things for months, and other prophetic people uh, around the world who have been getting these kind of things for months. We were doing great in the, in the weeks after September 11th. We're not doing so well now. Church attendance just skyrocketed. Prayer meetings skyrocketed after September 11th. Church attendance is lower right now than before September 11th. A lot of people went back to church and they found out why they didn't go in the first place. And the prayer has, has uh, fallen off. We need to intercede for our government like never before. And uh, we need to pray. That, that I'm all for retaliation. I firmly believe that when someone does something evil, I, I pray that the ones who uh, killed Daniel Pearl, I pray every one of them are caught 
and brought to justice. Everyone who even had anything to do with it, they're brought to full retributive justice. That's, that's what I pray. We just have to be sure that our retribution is just. If we attack the wrong country for the wrong thing, if we do it in the wrong time, we can suffer uh, consequences for it. So I believe the Lord is telling us through dreams and visions that, that uh, the design of the enemy is to obliterate Israel and to wreak havoc over here. Um, I mean, I could say a lot more about it, but there, there are some people doing secure business just went up. You invest in things because you can expect the business to prosper and be secure and so on. With terrorists, you don't know. And airlines may be put out of business. So why would you invest in an airline? But the economy is so interconnected. If something like the airlines were to fall, it hurts so many other things. And if we get a rash of, of severe terroristic activity over here, it will produce economic instability. And there are countries in the world that would benefit from that, that would benefit greatly. So the devil knows all of that and he's working overtime. But the church has the power to stop or at least to mitigate a lot of this if we would just, uh, if we just pray for it. Right? Okay. Uh, dreams, visions, pictures, those are all ways the Lord speaks to us. There are other ways the Lord speaks to us. Um, that I couldn't definitely prove in the Bible, but sometimes he'll uh, speak to us um, by bodily sensations. And uh, you say, where is that in the Bible? Well, one place where the woman touches Jesus and Jesus actually feels power go out from him. He felt something in his body. And that passage is telling us that at least on occasion, the Lord will use the body to speak to us. And I know some people get regular sensations. I mean, it's like almost like a regular way of communicating in the body. Sometimes... It will work like this. Uh, we, we might later this afternoon, we might pray and just see how many of us the Lord will speak to. But sometimes you'll feel a pain that's not your own pain. You know, just you'll be fine. All of a sudden, you feel pain right there. Or a stab in the back or someplace uh, else. And uh, then if you say, you're in a home group maybe, and you say, is anybody here, do you have a real sharp pain that's right over the right kidney? You'd be surprised. It'll be a person normally right around you that has that, uh, has that pain. Just uh, try it out sometimes. Sometimes uh, there, there may be a sign in your body. Sometimes there may be, uh, every once in a while, uh, like the Lord could speak to you through heat in your hands. Or uh, there have been times when we've seen oil just pour out of a person's hand. And I've seen the gold phenomena um, uh, happen on people. You know where that gold teeth turning, to get, getting filled with gold? You know where that started? In Argentina, among the poorest of the poor. And that was like a major sign of the revival. Well, it started happening over here a couple of years ago. And I think that's a sign, not that we're poor, but that the Lord wants to do revival like he's done in Argentina over here. He's doing that. So the Lord can speak to us in, in bodily or physical ways. Got uh, time for just a couple of questions. Yeah. Okay, it's a longing for Jesus to come, but then also this desire for uh, judgment. Well, praying for him to come is a great biblical prayer. 
Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And uh, there are two things going on in the end times. There's a cataclysmic outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It'll be the greatest time of signs and wonders. But there's also a devastating judgment on the people that won't come to the Lord. There'll also be many martyrs in the, uh, in the last days. But in his power, it'll seem a small thing to give your life for him in the last days. So I just say, pray for him to pour out his Holy Spirit. Cataclysmic outpouring of his Holy Spirit on the whole earth. Let him take care of the judgment. Um, we want to be real careful. All of us want to be real careful about desiring anybody's judgment. It's always better to desire their salvation. And, uh, and signs and wonders are often given to turn an unbelieving world to the Lord. So that, that's the way I pray. But I know there's going to be cataclysmic judgment on the ones who won't turn. Um, okay. Yeah. I pray for Israel's conversion. How do you pray for Israel? Pray for their conversion. We have to be really careful in the way we relate to Israel. God's kingdom is founded on righteousness. So I, I totally believe all Israel is going to be saved in the last days. Romans eleven twenty six. Totally believe that. But this is not the, the Israel that's here now is not believing Israel. And they have done unrighteous things like other nations, like the United States. So we don't want to support them unconditionally in their unrighteousness. We want to be their friend, their ally. But as the church, we want to pray ultimately for their, uh, for their salvation. Paul says when they turn, it'll be like life. It'll be like uh, uh, life from the dead for the earth. He says this in Romans 11. When Israel turns, it will mark the beginning of a cataclysmic outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the whole earth. Revival salvation. So much so that Paul says it's like life from the dead. You know, the Puritans knew this 300 years ago. And in the Puritan services, they prayed for the conversion of Israel because they believed it signaled blessing for the entire earth. So pray for their uh, conversion. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their uh, protection. But we don't want to blindly, we don't want our government to blindly support them. If they're torturing people and doing those sorts of things, you know, then we don't want to support that or encourage that. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's a great, great question. How do you discern in your, when you have an impression, how do you discern that that impression is from the Lord and not from some other source? I'll answer that after the break. Okay.